Welcome to Hope Beyond the Badge, a podcast that brings awareness, inspiration, and conversation together for first responders, families, and others interested in mental well-being in first response. New episodes weekly with your hosts, Jay Bailey and Linda Kokoros. Jay is a father, a military veteran, worked in the fire service for 18 years, and carries a diagnosis of PTSD. Linda is a mom, a wife, a certified life coach for first responders, and a suicide loss survivor of a first responder. Let's talk about it. Today we have Father Sean Connor in the studio. Father Sean is parish priest over at Sacred Heart Church in Weymouth, Mass., Boston Police Department chaplain and also previously worked in law enforcement himself for the Marshfield Police Department. There's so much more to this man, and Father Sean, we're looking forward to hearing all about it. First, would you please introduce yourself to our audience? Thank you, Jay and Linda. Um, My name is Father Sean. Uh, I've been at Our Lady Queen of Peace Parish now, Sacred Heart Church, for 10 years. Uh, I grew up in Marshfield after I was born in Brockton. Uh, Then we lived in Dorchester for a while, but we... uh, Flew the city like many others in the <laughs> early 70s. Yeah. I graduated from Ashfield High School, was public school educated, uh, went to college at Northeastern to study uh, criminal justice. And after three semesters in there, I left full time and started uh, my work at the Marshfield Police. Uh, I worked for them for 10 years and entered the seminary when I was 31 years old. So after six years of, of training and formation, then uh, I was ordained in 2001, um, spent about six months in parish work and when the clergy sexual abuse crisis, uh, the revelations of it were made public uh, because of my background uh, in law enforcement, but also as an investigator for sexual crimes and, and counseling work, uh, I was asked to be part of a team to help respond to victims, survivors, and their families. Oh, wow. I did not know that about you. Oh, we're going to get into that now that you're after talking about it. <laughs> that was very, uh, obviously, important work and very sensitive work. Mm. Uh, yeah. I still do some help on the sides as a referral. Um, about one year into that is when I took over the, as a, the, one of the Catholic chaplains for the Boston Police Department after... The original chaplains was injured and ended up at Spalding Rehab mm. and in a wheelchair. So um, I've had the privilege of working with him for 20 years, uh, really caring for police officers and their families, mm. uh, uh, as well as the civilian staff of the department. So, mm. uh, but I've helped with the Family Assistance Unit, peer support, uh, as well as critical incident response. Well, see, we told you that there's so much more to this man, right, Jay? Yeah, we did. We sure did. Father, I, I love all of this already. I mean, I, I we talked off air and I just said you're just a perfect candidate to come on the podcast, right? Um, because of your history in, in, in law enforcement and then also what you do, uh, continuing service, right? Whether it be being a priest, right? Um, but also still continuing service by helping first responders and families. Let's get into it. So... 
you you went to to college right um for to become criminal justice right to become a police officer was that something that you always wanted to do where did where did that come from i actually like, sorry come from a police family um my dad was a sergeant on the milton police for 36 years uh my brother just retired from the state police former metro police officer uh, my nephew joe has been on the state police for a few years now but um I think as, as, as boys, we always wanted to imitate our dad. Mm. Our dad wanted us to go to school and uh, have, have a, an easier life. Um, mm. His time in law enforcement, he started during World War II, actually. Um, he was a little older. Um, we were the second marriage um, for um, Miles Connor, Joseph, as he went by yep. his middle name. But uh, my brother and I would always be trying to dress up and uh, uh, play the good side of the law. Uh, yeah. I come from a kind of blended, complicated family. Someone in the law enforcement community will know about my uh, older brother and his hijinks. But um, my dad passed away in 81. Um, my brother and I were still in high school, and I, I think that it kind of changed the path for us to, to follow him, uh, to to. to do good and help others. Mm. Uh, I think that's what led it there. I, I, I never thought of myself as being a priest. Uh, mm. um, my brother, who's a year older than me, uh, everyone always told him he should be a priest, where I, I was a little more uh, one to get in trouble, push the, the lines, <laughs> if you will. So so share with us a little bit about that, right? You wanted to, it sounds like that your dad was a role model for you, for you and your brother, right? Your your brother's also a state trooper, right? Um, yeah, he just retired. He just retired? 36, 37 years. Oh, wow. wow. Maybe we should have him in too um, to, to chat with him. Um, but it sounds like your dad was the role model. And again, especially when he, like, he passed away, that was something that you, you were led into. Um, when you when you said you, we used to dress up as like the good um, the good side of the law, did that mean like dress up like as police officers, or you wanted to be the good cops, like that type of way? I, I think in the late sixties, early seventies, uh, every little boy played either you know army man or yeah police officer or cowboy versus the Indians. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. So you sort of did that too, followed that that area. So what? When that when you said okay I'm going to follow in this this um, career path as being a, a police officer, and you ended up in Marshfield, right? How long were you a police officer in Marshfield? Uh, ten years. Ten. So, tell us a little bit about that. Tell us a little bit about that experience as a young pup, so to speak, right? A young rookie, um, going on the job. You still had sort of you know stuff that you saw, like from your dad, your dad coming home. I don't know whether he shared stories or not, right? Or if you even saw that something, time things were bothering him when he did come home. But share with us your experience as a police officer um, in Marshfield. I think I'll start first with talking about my dad. Mm. He was of that generation. Uh, he was born in 1915, so uh, they didn't talk about what they experienced, whether it was in service to the nation or... Yeah, uh, as a police officer, I think they often kept things to themselves. Yeah, you could see the effects, obviously, mm-hmm. um, and it it took his life young. Um, but I I think our generation learned to do the same, mm. and I think it's one of the, the 
key areas of uh, what you're trying to do in this podcast or as we talked about earlier, mm. the work that was done yesterday for the McLean Leadership Institution is yep. that there was really no pathway on the job or, or in the service to help others along the way. Mm. Uh, you had that natural peer support of brothers helping brothers, if you will. Yeah. But when it came to feelings or hurt or, or those hidden injuries, I, I think um, you just towed the line. Mm. Um, for myself, going to Northeastern, uh, which had a great program, uh, I was leaning towards the federal side of law enforcement. Uh, I've always been uh, a hunter or investigator, if you will. Mm. Um, but the opportunity at Marshfield when it opened up, for me, was kind of the work-study program. So mm. it was a part-time entry into full-time uh, law enforcement. It became natural for me, and it was at home, but I... I didn't see it as, as a future, but I actually enjoyed it very much. It, mm. it, it helped me on the path where I am now. Yeah, absolutely. You probably didn't even know it then that that was, you know, yes, I was meant to do this, to, to be doing this today, right? Um, but you said something like about your dad there, um, going back to that, like in that error, right, that, um, you know, being um, in the military, right, and then also um, being a first responder, there was there was no resources there, right? As a family, did you guys notice a change in your dad? Definitely, you could see when there was tough days or tough times, mm. and he, even the effects of multiple um, cardiac episodes. Yeah, um, and even right before he retired, they just listed him out as a sick injury. Mm. He wouldn't wasn't proper to share any type of weakness, mm. whether it be physical, emotional, psychological, yeah. um, until it took its final toll that he couldn't go back to work yeah, um, and retired. Yeah. Did he retire young? Uh, of age. So it's he, yeah. he had 36 years. And prior to law enforcement, um, he was actually an accountant. He went to college, which, wow. which was unheard of at, at that age. Mm. Um, and he was married to his first wife and had two kids, when World War II started. Mm. So his wife wouldn't sign for him to um, enlist and go overseas, so he, he stayed at home. But the deal he made with her was, if I can't serve on the campaign overseas, then I want to serve at home. So wow. he quit his job as an accountant and became a police officer. Wow, mm. what a great story, right? So now here you are, right? You saw some of those changes right at home. And and you might not have known what those changes were, but you knew hey, dad was off or maybe, you know, cranky or whatever it might have been that you saw. I mean, we don't need to even to go into that. About yourself now. I mean, here you are on a, on the on the police department uh, in Marshfield. And during that time, even back then, you got to see, right, you're in a job of service, right, of trauma service duty, right? And you get to see that every day. Um, and not known. Do were you expecting to, to? Were you expecting that? Like to see that? I think what we grew up on in the seventies and eighties, uh, our understanding through whether it be books, TV, or movies, you, you had an image in your your mind of what the job entailed. Mm. Um, I don't think you anyone is prepared to understand yeah. the, the effects that it has on you, mm. going from that uh, zero to a hundred, and then stopping, mm. um, or being 
at rest and, and having to, to go beyond what's uh, normal for a human being to do. And uh, again, you still had the inherited culture, if you will, of uh, you keep things inside. You might blow yeah. off steam. Shove it down. With the boys afterwards. Mm. Uh, or you might uh, take off the edge by alcohol or other things mm-hmm. uh, that just numb the feeling and yeah. made it capable for you to go back to work. Yeah, we we heard those um, those type of um, conversations in other interviews where um, one of the police chiefs that said it was called choir practice, right? Going out and having choir practice and wherever that might been meaning, you're going to all be able to let off that steam, right? And that was a coping mechanism um, then, right? Because there was even if there was any some support, it wasn't really known um, amongst your peers, right, and yourself. It, it wasn't public, definitely. Yeah. I, I mm-hmm. think for the married uh, officers and and those who were married and had children, you needed to do something to prepare yourself to go home, mm. uh, especially to to sleep, get a few hours of sleep, yeah, or not enter your family with that edge still on. Yeah, like those raw effects of, of of the job, or it's uh, yeah, or. or the, the broken part of humanity that you mm. encountered or touched. Yeah, when you think about that, right? Uh, you know, again, the the husband going home, the first responder going home, and um, needed to blow off some steam before they went home to the family, the wife, whatever. Right? They needed to just shake that off and going to choir practice or having a few beers, whatever it might have been. They need to do that for that night, but then it happens again the next day. It becomes a, a becomes habit. a habit. And it becomes you, you take on bad habits, mm-hmm. which are really not coping mechanisms. They're uh, it's medication. Yeah, it's it's been it, it is a coping mechanism in a formal way because it's helping you cope with what you're dealing with right now, and it, but it just numbs it and just makes it go away for a very very short time. Jim, Jay, do you want to chime in on that? Well, yeah, I mean, coping mechanisms they can be healthy, they can be they can be unhealthy, and I think a lot of times. Um, we see exactly what you what you describe, and Father. We see we see people who are having uh, their nervous system interacted with. I love the way you put that interacting with like the broken parts of humanity, because that's what takes a toll on on first responders. Those interactions, and um, I guess I'm wondering if you were aware that that was going on with you uh, when you were on the job. Um, if nervous system and in a lot of ways is like a muscle right it can get exhausted the more Mm. that you the more that uh the more that you have that spike and your brain releases those chemicals and that adrenaline um and a lot of times i think people are unaware that that that's happening or unable to acknowledge uh that that that's that's creating a reaction within them and then from there you know many people many people cope in unhealthy ways but were you aware that the job was having an impact on you, or I'd say probably no early okay. on. I think it would be easy for you to point to others who maybe had been on twenty twenty five years, yeah, uh, many of whom were Vietnam veterans mm-hmm. um, who saw you know heavy combat. But you'd say, "Geez, I don't want to be like that." Mm. Yeah. But what I'm doing now is just normal. That's what everyone does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like this is what everyone else is doing, right? To be able to get through the night, to go home. 
It's, right? It's part of the choir. It's part of yeah. the choir, right? Yeah. It's part of the choir. Um, and you're still learning to sing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So here's this, you know, new cop coming in, and after a couple of years, whatever was formed already in the culture was what you were just guided into because that's what everyone else did, yeah. right? You're and pick, it happens in all departments. You, you're definitely picking up good habits. This is how you do the job. Mm. This is how you succeed, if you will, mm. or be good. Mm. You're also picking up bad habits. Mm. Uh, and for those who are young, unmarried, socially, you're picking up bad habits as well. Yeah. Yes, absolutely, for sure. So do you think that, like, over over that time, um, in like 10 years being on, on law enforcement, um, you know, we've heard so many, much from other first responders who's coming in. I don't know if you've listened to the podcast or not, but a lot of people have shared with us that, um, you know, some of those calls, right, that that they still remember, right, that still play in the head over and over again. Do you have any of those from that time, that time period? I have a good story that you'll like. Okay. So it's, it's my rookie year, mid-98, it's 1985. Mm. So way back in the time machine. Mm-hmm. And... I'm riding with a seasoned veteran. I don't want to say his name because he would be one who had bad habits. <laughs> like I <laughs> okay. love the guy, but don't want to become him. Yeah. Um, yeah. And our job in night to eight for the old lieutenant who was a World War II Navy guy was uh, there was no Dunkin' Donuts in, in those days, uh, probably just the one in Quincy. Mm-hmm. There was the donut tree right at the Pembroke line. It had the worst coffee I've ever had. <laughs> I hope yeah. they're still not there. Yeah. <laughs> they're not there. <laughs> They'd be very unhappy with you. <laughs> um, so our job was to get two packs of cigarettes for the lieutenant, coffee for the shift, and do nothing. Put on your blinders until you get back with his hot coffee, his two packs of cigarettes. Yeah. Uh, great guy, great father figure in my life, uh, especially after our dad died. Yeah. But we went up there. I'm 20 years old. We, we get to the line make the order. I think we even got half-price coffees in those days. Mm. Two packs of cigarettes, which were probably under a buck. Mm. We're coming back, and a call comes in for drag racing. So it's you know, midnight, middle of the winter. So uh, I looked at uh, my partner training guy and basically say, so what do we do? Mm. We have our orders. Yeah. Our order's very clear, and obviously that's the way every shift started. He said, light them up and call it in. So he starts chasing the car, and we're heading down a, a side road. So it's lots of hills, uh, Forest Street in Marshfield, and bench seats, roll-down windows, no, oh my no, no stereo, <laughs> and we're chasing them. So I'm calling it in, probably sounding frantic uh, on the radio with a high-pitched voice. And uh, the coffee, the two trays of it, are spilling everywhere. Yeah. So I... <laughs> So I rolled down the window and I hucked the coffee out because I'm getting burnt. Yeah. As we came over a hill, uh, the car hit up in the air, rolled over, crashed, burst into flames. Oh, wow. So we call it in for help. Figured we would wake up the firemen because they're probably asleep. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we'd jump out of the car. Now, instinct, training, and everything else, smash the windows, drag out yep. the two bodies. And, and you know that your adrenaline is through the roof because yeah. you're, you're shaking. But you know that you've done what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Up comes the fire department. 
and giving us a plod. They put out the fire. Uh, ambulance arrives. They're taking care of everyone. Lieutenant shows up. Uh, now we're covered with soot, shaking. Um, yeah. The, the scene there is like it's that early on. Mm. And his response is, where's my coffee? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and where's your hat? Oh, no way. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So my mentor, father figure, partner in, in crime says, well, takes one step back and says, he threw it out the window. <laughs> <laughs> he, he ratted you out. Oh, my goodness. So I, I, I called the lieutenant who we called him the same in the neighborhood. We'd live next door to him. Um, we called him Pa, is, is what his children and grandchildren called him. Yeah. And he said, it's Lieutenant. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. I'll go up to the line and get coffee and get my cigarettes. Which his were all smushed with uh, coffee in the bottom of the cruiser floor. Oh, my goodness. So, and I, I said to one of the guys who just retired, I said, you had a similar scene and you got an award. I said, I spent 10 bucks replacing coffee and cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. That's amazing. But how did you get over that? How did you get that adrenaline down from that night? I mean, yeah, it was sort of used with humor, right? And and afterwards, but in that moment, right, you're after going through this, you're on this whole adrenaline, 100% adrenaline all up there. And then very quickly being told off, right, I'm to come down, whoa, this is reality here. But there's also still reality that you just pulled two people from the car. Did they survive, by the way? Yeah. Wow, good for you. It, it, and it so was, you're a hero as well. Uh, I would say no. I just did what anyone would do. Mm. But it's it was like that first taste of, wow, this can move fast. Mm. Yeah. And an hour later, everything shut down. It's the middle of the winter. It's in the 80s. No, no one's out. Yeah. Wow. It gives a really clear example too for our listeners about what we were just talking about. Like if you think of the central nervous system as a as a as a muscle that can be exhausted through use, right? If you've ever been at the gym and had muscle failure, you have this lieutenant who I mean, obviously this is a serious scene. It it's a rollover, the car's on fire, you have to extricate victims. Um, you know, it's it's no um it's it's no small deal in terms of calls and um, you know, there's no reaction within that person that's been doing the job for, for a long time. And uh, for, for those newer first responders, there's a human reaction, and that can get dulled over time. Mm. Certainly, and I, I think you, you can easily become numb to it. Yes. Mm. And, and for him, it's, I'm starting my night, get me my coffee. Coffee, yeah. My two packs of cigarettes that I'm going to smoke in eight hours. Yeah. Mm. And I used to drive landing craft and uh, landed at Normandy, and everyone I know that I loved was killed around me. So mm. what we just did means nothing to him. It's just another night. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And I, I think that also what you're saying, Jay, and I mean, the two of you can start to relate with it, right, as as first responders, right, um, was that, you know, here you are, right, coming, you, you use the word numb, right, you become numb to it. It's like desensitizing, right, cannot be desensitized. I'm, again, just for the, the, the listener, you can't be sensitive to that because guess what? You have to be ready for the next call. Mm-hmm. And somehow someone is, is your partner who's with you is, is getting ready for the next call and he's not showing any sign of, of all this because he's been on the job for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. And, and has already reached that point of being able to push it down. Um, 
But I can tell you, just from, you know, or how I feel, is that pushing it down and right and becoming numb to it or, yeah, just it's just another call, right? But somewhere along the line, the shoving it down, I call it in, in like the compact or the trash barrel that's going to just overflow after after a certain amount of time and it just might be that one call that comes up after accumulating you know gathering all those calls like over the years maybe and then all of a sudden something happens and then you're not fine right you're you're struggling with what i'm not having i'm not sleeping i'm not wow was this one call hadn't affected me but it really wasn't it was multiple calls Mm. can you relate with something like that father Uh, certainly I, i think it's it's very human. Yeah. So it's for for this lieutenant, he's the guy that came to tell my brother and I that our dad had died. Mm-hmm. So he's he fathered us. Uh, yeah, he's the guy that uh, caught me driving a car at fifteen, <laughs> half on the bag. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> and I can relate to that experience as well, Father Sean. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> so it's finally okay for him to say that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, you know. For him, it's it's an encounter and it's it's a life lesson, and this is how he endured it. Um, and and obviously, inside he would have known the ill effects that mm. the job, like the war, had on him. Yeah. Um, but I shortly after that, we had our first um, on on duty death. Yeah. Young officer in his thirties. Um, married with a little kid, um, finished a regular shift, day shift, went home middle of the summer, lived across the street from the station. Really good guy, uh, uh, a happy, joyful uh, young officer, young husband and dad. Just finished a shift in shape, uh, no real bad habits. Mm-hmm. Uh, walked across the street, went to light up the grill for dinner. Wife went looking for him, and he's dead in the backyard. Yeah. Wow. Um, the response from the department was a little reality check, self-awareness, yep. but they started the first stress unit, and it was uh, mind-changing, life-changing for the department to um, put a gym in, in the station. Uh, they had, here's some self-help books and tapes you can listen to. Uh, here's someone you can talk to. If things are bad at home, things are uh, bad on the job, or uh, it's okay to say to someone, um, you don't look yourself today. As Linda said when she saw me come in today, losing one of my best friends uh, Mm. uh, this morning. And uh, we can see it in others Mm -hmm. uh, through the eyes, uh, through the expressions, through the words or lack thereof. Mm. I started to see a change in the uh, first responder community based on that, uh, and not just for the department, for for fire and EMS as well. It, yeah. the, the family responded uh, to the loss. Yeah, yeah. So I know that was an on-duty death, right, that you were talking about there earlier on, um, and that must have been hard for the department. How did it... How did the department deal with it? Do you remember? How did it deal with it? And what was the was there or if any support for for other first responders, um, you know, who are close with that 
just being in this working in the same department, right? I'm sure Marshfield wasn't a big, big, huge department at the time, even. So, was there support or, or from the department? There was support on a, a human side because the loss was was you know immediate, mm-hmm. um, invisible. Um, everyone went out of their way to say, "What can we do to respond to the family?" and those who were closest with him. Mm. You know, for, for me, it was a, a fresher relationship. Mm. But it was someone that you, you knew and that, yeah. that, that isn't supposed to die at that age. Yes. Yeah. Um, so their response was to form the stress unit. Their response was to uh, probably have a little more quiet practice time, if you will. Mm. Um, but that, that was okay. Mm. Um, but I, I think it helped change the culture, and, and it certainly... Especially with my experience as as a chaplain, as caring for the officers and the families in Boston, um, it's been through more tragedy. So, mm-hmm. uh, online deaths, uh, mm. police suicides, mm-hmm. um, um, and and for their families. So, yeah. the, I think the peer support, uh, the family assistance unit, uh, the crisis response. Uh, when we do get called out, which is fairly regular, mm. um, it is all hands on deck. So there's people that uh, are trained and experienced that can be kind of the first line there. Mm. But the support to the uh, fellow officers and even the command staff and their presence, it's important for the event, mm. uh, for caring for the, the loss and for the, the person, especially caring for their body, mm. and then uh, helping them make arrangements. So we... we much like a military chaplain, mm. we take care of everyone, regardless of what their faith is or mm-hmm. yeah. uh, their belief system. But uh, we also have, because it's a large department, have a diverse group. So it's it's kind of like a, a, a good uh, uh, joke. There's two priests, two ministers, a rabbi, and an imam. Yeah. So, so there's a lot. We can walk into a bar together. It <laughs> <laughs> doesn't happen too often. But w- yeah. we can meet people where they're at with someone they're comfortable with. Yeah. I, l- I love that you're talking about that, and that's now. That's that's happening now, right? But it probably wasn't back then. It it wasn't. It was probably more personal. Um, mm. um, but it, it certainly planted uh, the good fruit that we have now. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, absolutely. It, it's those small losses and and what's built on from generation to generation, especially having the ability, like uh, after a, any type of critical incident, where you you have a, a a team or a place where people can have a little peer support. Yeah. Without having uh, the bosses, if you will, yeah, uh, present that it's not a debriefing is meant to be personal. Yes. And and uh, I'm sure you're both aware. Right, uh, there's legislation pending that would make those type of things admissible which is going to shut down the process of responding uh, to those in need whether they're, they're involved in a shooting or any type of critical incident whether someone uh, is injured or, or killed uh, those first responders need a place and, and need a team that can help them in that immediate effect mm. before they get to the point of needing uh, to testify before others yeah mm-hmm. yeah i know um that's uh something that is a whole other conversation right to, to happen on there i just thought when i when you start to hit me you start to hit me here a little bit when you touched on you know um the family support unit um i, I don't know what the how you referenced it um family so, services or whatever type of thing can you talk about that a little bit in the in the police department 
referring back to, you know, leading up to uh, your tenures, like in, right, as a police officer and what you saw then for family services and then compared to now, I'm just going by my own experience from five years ago. So I'm sort of, that's sort of where it hit me. If you want to elaborate on that a little bit. Certainly. I, I think on the, the small of the departments took care of themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you had a, a major event that kind of crossed the boundaries and then others would come to, to, uh, to have a resource. Uh, yeah. When I started with, with Boston, uh, I got to know that they had a peer support unit um, and a, a family assistance unit. So they do everything from... Um, you have a loss in your family to an injury, mm. retirements, but also addiction support groups, uh, whatever the family needs. And it's based out of the commissioner's office. So it has its authority and has its resources. Mm. And, and that's what I've appreciated um, learning about, but also being part of whatever the need is, they respond uh, with everything that's an asset for the department. Yeah. Um, and, and sometimes that support, um, seeing it, especially uh, at the Boston Marathon and being, yeah. being a first responder there, mm-hmm. um, the whole city was in need. Um, and everyone who was on the scene that day for any type of first response, as well as the public who isn't trained or experienced in that type of tragedy mm-hmm. uh, um, and, and need present need to, to care for those um it was an ongoing uh, like three-week process of of constantly making sure there was support there yeah and, and that happened in little things like bringing coffee to a shift or a sandwich yeah as well as just being there in the middle of the night to talk to yeah and what does family assistance program mean um, is this only in boston by the way that's boston's language for it i i i don't know of other departments that, that have the ability to have something that present so there's I think right now uh, five offices uh, assigned direct to family assistance peer support so they can respond in a crisis, but they're also there every day uh, to care for any type of needs that an officer or their family might have. Okay. Uh, all trained as part of the critical incident response team. Mm-hmm. Um, so that they were all there for the leader fundraiser for McLean's uh, yesterday at the guy. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, I mean, that's very interesting to know. And also for, you know, for a first responder family who might be sort of in a little bit of crisis, right? But also the loss of a first responder to suicide or even in the line of duty, right? Um, for a family to know that there there is support out there and, and know about it. And again, that's why I asked you, was this only for Boston? Or is it, you know, is it involved in all different, you know, departments, even locally? I, I think that just to, to help the public with it, I think the... Uh, current uh, first responders all understand how the system works, especially in this state. That is, uh, And we started this over 20 years ago. We responded from Boston to Weymouth when they lost their first officer. Mm-hmm. Um, after those type of experiences, the smaller departments created their own kind of support unit that might not be full-time or dedicated, but it's trained. Yeah. So they're able to do things like um, when Braintree had their their shootings um, just a few years ago. Yeah. Um, I know myself and, and Father Paul Clifford from Braintree at the time. I would have been um, in Weymouth, but I'm part of Boston's response team. I went to the city uh, to care for one of the offices there, while Father Clifford went to care for one of the other offices. Mm. I'm, I'm purposely not using names just to. Yeah. Uh, 
without having their permission. Yeah. But um, I think everyone in the system, uh, for whether it be police, fire, EMS, uh, they've seen these type of groups in action. So they, they want to, how can I plant this here? Or they know that if there's a major uh, event, the, these type of response teams will go anywhere. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I mean, yes, that they, they have that. And I, I know that that was sort of like in the line of duty of what was happening, right? I'm wondering from my own experience, and I'm taking it just from my own experience, right? And I'm no intentions. It's all with good intentions, but it's just for purposes of a listener and a family might be struggling. But we went through a suicide of a, of a police officer, right? A family member. And, um, you know... And I think back on, on our own experience, that that was not offered, right? Again, I think because it was a suicide, um, but also the department um, didn't offer it. Like, there wasn't, I'm sorry for your loss, never mind, send out to Calvary, right, right to help us out. So do you, do you feel that there's a difference between a line of duty or even, not even a death, right, but someone needing help, the line of duty, death even, versus a suicide for a family support. Like, this, our, our loss was five years ago, so it was pretty new, right? Where, where, is, where do you think that that's going, or where do you think we could improve on that, if any? Because I, I never knew anything about that. I think there's always room for improvement. And yeah. any time there is a loss or an event, it should be a learning experience. Mm. How could I have done better? Mm. Um I, I said that with my friend who passed away this morning to his wife. I should have visited more. Mm, yeah. You, you get caught in up. In hindsight, right? And, yeah. You get caught up in what you have to do every day, and there's always another call. There's always yeah. something to do. But yeah, um, when someone is hurting, when someone uh, has a loss, uh, presence is one of the most important things. It communicates love. Um, yes. Even I, without words, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we call it in uh, church circles the ministry of presence. Mm. When you're there, presence, it's, yeah. If like going to a wake, you, you learn as a kid to say, just say, "I'm sorry for your loss." Mm. Yes, because you don't have words to take away a death. Yes, uh, but your presence can be there. Uh, suicide is still has its stigma. Uh, people think it's a bad thing. Uh, uh, the importance of of language of it's not. He took his life. Mm. He died by suicide. Mm-hmm. That's right big difference yeah um the same for my friend is uh not afraid to say i have als mm-hmm. I, know, I know i have a death sentence mm-hmm. um his response was to participate in uh trial programs to try to find a cure for someone else yeah um, research more research and yeah. um it's suicide for military for first responders um has a worse stigma, if you will, than the civilian population. Um, because people think, I guess, that you're trained differently. Mm. You're, you're used to, to the darkness that's out there. Mm. Um, that you should uh, just brush it off. Yeah, or or not talked about because you fear of being judged, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I know I felt that. 
father um you know after alex lost i have that picture out there in, in the in the hallway like my own experience with it jay has heard me say this mul- multiple times but i think it's very relevant um to this conversation to share it again but you know even a year after alex passed and some a customer would come in and i'd see them looking at the picture on the wall and then they'd say do you know that do you know that man i'd say yeah it's our son and um we lost him two years ago or whatever yeah. or whatever it was then but i would never say how Right. We lost him. And f- never, I mean, I would never say the word suicide. Yeah. And um, again, for fear of being judged and um, and didn't want to go there, didn't want to have to go uh, in a, a protection mode to say, you know, no, you it, it was it, it's it's okay to say that word. I didn't want to address it, I didn't want to and yeah, it was my own stigma, right? So um, I've I've been judged, but then, you know, I found myself sort of, you know, speaking to some first responders and, and, you know, especially here at the cafe, um, being able to talk to them. And I I realized very quickly that Alex, we we thought we were the only one, you know what I mean? That we were going through that. We didn't didn't know about any of other um, suicide deaths in law enforcement or, or in first response in general around us at all because... It's not, it wasn't talked about, right? Mm. It still wasn't talked about five years ago. It was in no-no. And, and I guess I'd have brushed underneath the table. And, and that's how our family was treated too. So sort of, I went along with it, like, you don't talk about it. And, um, but I very quickly realised that um, the other first responders were coming in and, and talking to me and, and sharing little bits. And it was, it was very evident to me others were going through um, some sort of struggle um, and I knew if I wanted to help somebody, I needed to drop my own stigma and, and yeah. get rid of that and get rid of the shame that came along with it um, for, for me, you know, personally. And, uh, and that was the only way that I was able to do that was to drop it and start talking about it. So if someone says to me, do you know that gentleman? Yes, it was our son. He, uh, we lost him five years ago to, and he, he died by suicide. Yeah. And I don't feel any shame. I feel actually a lot of, um, I mean, the relief when I dropped it first. Um, but also, um, you know, I feel this is an oppo- op- another opportunity for me to bring light yeah. and awareness to suicide and first response and, and mental health in general and first response. Anyone want to chime in on that? No? Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Um, so I think when you talk about talking about it, that's so important, right? It's yes. in our intro. Let's yeah. let's talk about it because that's uh, the only way that we can really ar- arrive at, at uh, more honest truths. And, and from that place, that's where we might be able to create change. And that's certainly what we hope to do here. Mm. Um, and earlier in the conversation, uh, we were talking about sort of the human reaction, right? Yeah. Uh, loss and, and grief and uh, trauma. And human tragedy, these are painful things. And there's a psychological response. It's not just okay, it's natural, and it's expected that your body might try to avoid that pain. And that's how we become numb in this line of work. Mm. And it is by no coincidence that there is a much higher rate of of suicide for military veterans and for first responders than there is the rest of the population. And that's because it's duty-connected. That's my opinion, mm. uh, but the data certainly supports that that opinion. And and this is uh, what we're talking about now is kind of the spectrum 
of how human beings respond to these things. We might get numb. We might cope through alcohol and drug use. And uh, if we continue to progress, then in order to end that pain, um, we've talked about this, people that commit suicide, it's that's what they're trying to do is, is no longer hurt, no longer be in pain. pain. And um, while that's difficult to talk about, I believe that's how we reduce these numbers by smashing this stigma, by removing the shame that's associated with the conversation so that first responders can reach out and get the help that they deserve. Mm. Because not only is it okay to not be okay, it's normal, it's expected, and it's entirely in line with the science and math of the human condition that you might be hurting. Mm. Uh, and there's help, and you can get well and have a better career and, and be of more service. Yeah, you're you're in a, a, a trauma duty job, right? Mm-hmm. So you're going to see that, and it's okay to have human reaction to, yes, to what you see every day. That's why it's so important to get that information out there. I think that's the, the, the key to understanding uh, kind of 101 counseling that we learned in the seminary was name it, claim it, and tame it. So the naming of suicide, uh, the claiming the effects, the, the job, like any physical, psychological type of work, you know, I've been doing this warehouse work for 30 years. Now I have degenerative back problems. Mm-hmm. Couldn't see it on the outside mm-hmm. until the point where I can't lift that or I'm injured. Mm-hmm. Um, the effects of dealing with darkness in the world uh, and the ugliness of humanity mm-hmm. it it has to have an effect it has right. an effect on the eyes on the heart but it, it's going to have an effect on the, the person's very being in, in my language their soul yes um, yeah my language uh, too father <laughs> amen sister so um, the the naming of suicide after the event and is affects the family, mm-hmm. but it also affects the family's um, memory and love of their loved one. Mm-hmm. Is it is someone going to think he was bad because yeah. he died by suicide? Yeah. Um, and and you've seen the, uh, the, the kind of present understanding of, of people who have a diagnosis, PTSD. Mm-hmm. I had that same diagnosis after the marathon um, from the effects of other mm-hmm. uh, tragedies, uh, other deaths, other suicides. It, yeah. was, um, it was going to a police suicide of entering uh, to bless the body of the his of a friend. Yeah. Um, his the smell of gunpowder and mm-hmm. the blood. It was like a 10-year flashback back to... Uh, ground zero, if you will, of the marathon. Mm-hmm. Um, psychologically, or even in my own feelings, I didn't see the connection to it, but everything has a connection to it. That's how mm-hmm. we're, we're wired. Yeah. Um, when we lose someone, we have a connection to their memory, like, because it's still not right for us. Yeah. It's, and we still think, did I miss something? Mm. Uh, especially when it's a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like you're, you're like, what, what should I have known? Yeah. I should have known this, right? All of this type of thing. So, yeah, you start to hold on to that sort of like guilt, as as they might sure. call it, right? Like it's vulnerability. Yeah, and uh, and sort of you know, 
some sort of a blame right on yourself you want to you want to put all of that on yourself and sort of be able to I think it's a way of coping like okay this happened because I didn't notice it right or I didn't do anything yeah. about it or, or, or what or did he, I miss or he didn't or he didn't right yeah absolutely for sure you're bringing a whole other train of thought into my head now um but yeah and I mean it's it's so important for families out there um to to I mean the purpose of this whole conversation right is to we're hoping on the badge we want to talk about mental health and first response and mental wellness and first response so before there's like even a, a it comes to a, a problem for a family or, or a crisis situation where a family is looking and searching for help um you know talking about it before it even gets to that right it's okay to go and seek help it doesn't have to get to that situation yeah, that's what we want to reach and not only okay it it should be part of our diet yes. so seeing the fundraiser like yesterday mm. whole departments didn't have like one token you go and represent us yeah they all went making their their own uniforms visible mm. uh, the pride in their own departments yeah uh, the collegiality of it, the familiness of it. Yeah. So it's not just first responders who went; they went with their families. Yeah. Mm. Yes. So they're t- communicating to them, and they're communicating to the all of society that uh, I'm a family person. Yes. Yeah. Um, but my family believes in caring for one another. Yes. Um, my family has need and loss, um, and as family, we respond as family. Yes, mm-hmm. and, absolutely. And, and if it's normalized that hear the effects of the job yeah then it's normalized that there's a regular help on the job yes yeah. absolutely he's talking about the, if you want to just share real quickly about the what you did yesterday um because you just mentioned it there um just for our listeners um like what is he talking about when you didn't follow up on it so if you want to follow up on it um what that what happened yesterday so the BFIT challenge it was year eight at the garden um national grid has been uh, a major supporter as is the, the whole family at the TD Bank Garden. Mm-hmm. I think I just earned a free T-shirt from them. Uh, <laughs> a lot of us and a, a lot of uh, first responders and their families uh, went to be part of this challenge. So you saw firefighters uh, carrying their tanks and running up and down the stairs at TD Garden. Mm-hmm. And then the two levels that go up, they created an indoor course. Um, I think the first year we ran outside. I was ha- happy yesterday that we were running inside. You're inside. Um, I don't really run anymore. Uh, I just had a little back operation. so. But I did make the rounds. And, and you uh, did participate. I did participate. That's what I, matters. I, I joined the uh, Martin Richard Foundation, Team MR8, I'm a founding board member of, uh, and a close family friend. Uh, I buried little Martin after mm-hmm. he was killed at the marathon. And um, it's part of the work that family does in response to their loss is um, – response to those who cared for them the first responders mm. in their community and just got goosebumps and it's uh it's pretty powerful it's 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 a witness but it's also the medicine they received they bring that medicine to others yes uh, hope uh, yes. peace yeah. um, and you could see it present there uh, my brother was picking on me last night when i said uh, i had my bib on with my number and, and my medal hanging around my and he said, yeah, you're a T-ball t- medal for participation trophy. <laughs> but the 
the work that they do um, in the foundation itself and, and its effect on the first responder community and their families yeah. is, is pretty powerful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what what the, what uh, Father Sean was talking about was that there's a Boston Bruins, right, and and the, the Be Fit Challenge that happens every year and all first responder communities come from all over to get teams together, they raise fundraiser, they raise money, and they it all goes to where... Uh, to the leadership program at McLean Hospital. So yesterday, I, th- I believe it was over $800,000 that was raised. Mm. This is the eighth year. And, and that program uh, locally is one that uh, our first responders can go to when crisis happens, when an incident happens, mm. or when the cumulative effects of the job yes. uh, identify areas, whether it's substance abuse or other issues, yeah. uh, to, to, to help them. Yeah. Uh, Yep. Yeah, absolutely, and and McLean the the leader program is 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 again my father said is is a um, uh, care facility right for first responders in in general just first responders in general, um it's a totally separate unit from McLean Hospital itself it has its own unit for first responders who can get help um so that they can be well and get back on the job and 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 that happens through you know, Judy trauma from the job, right? Um, and that all goes to that. We're going to have McLean, um, the director of the leader program, um, at our family readiness workshop on Mar- March 9th. So families will be able to interact with the director, um, will interact with the director of the program and, and be able to um, see that it's, you know, it's, it, a, it's a good thing. It's If you use common sense, and I believe the leader is also open to the military active members, mm. uh, that if you're in a, public position uh, as a first responder, mm. uh, especially in a position that, that you're supposed to be stronger, better than everyone else, yeah. at least by appearance, you can't uh, comfortably, for most folks, go to a, a public meeting, whether it be an AA meeting or, or a facility when you may have helped put others there. Yes. Um, so we need a safe place, and, yeah. and that's why they've created this. There are other programs uh that I've been involved with, like especially down in Florida, there's a whole former hotel turned into a treatment facility that's just for first responders yeah. in the military. Yeah, so there is so many resources there, and Father Sean has started touching on that, and we will touch on that a little bit at the end there too. So now, talking about all first response and the whole thing, then you wanted to become a priest. How the heck did that happen? Well, that would be a whole other episode. Um, <laughs> but it's uh, I was actually on retreat, um, to find out if I was ready to propose to the young lady I was dating. And I was nowhere ready um, because it wasn't right. Yeah, mm. I wasn't, uh, I was in love with what I had. I wasn't in love to be with you for the rest of my life yeah. or, or to give myself to you. Um, I, I, I was first on, mm. on my list back then. Uh, but through that relationship, I I learned uh, my vocation, my call, but also it helped me to open up my heart to, in order to surrender it. Yeah. So I, I went on that mm. kind of silent, uh, it's called a Crescio retreat. My brother had gone the year before, and I saw the change in his life and in his marriage. Mm. Not that there was some, something broken, but yes. it's every day you're supposed to fall more in love. Yeah. Um, and if you're blessed to be married, uh, you're supposed to fall in love more and more with each other. Um, and, and that's why anything that 
hurts that relationship is going to lead to problems uh, like coping mechanisms and, and bad habits. Uh, mm-hmm. For me, it it opened me up to a flashback from uh, John Paul's uh, visit to Boston. And, mm. and it was at that mass where he particularly talked about vocations that I had that spark in my heart that said, I think I'm supposed to be a priest. And it, it oh. wasn't because I felt worthy of it. Definitely not smart enough uh, to go back to school uh, or to be entrusted with uh, caring fathers that way. But mm. it's where I found happiness and joy and hope. Wow. And now there and you're, you're over at Sacred Heart and I know Father, myself and Father Sean have become good friends. Um, so I can give him, I can give him, I can give him stick like we're, we're you know, I, we just talk to each other like friends, right? Um, would do. But now you support the, the Boston Chief pla- Chaplain, right? You're the Boston Chief. You get our chaplain. You get to go to call. Share with us what you do and involved in that and how you support now first responders still serving the seven communities. So it's, uh, the way I try to describe it to folks is it's like knowing another language or culture. Mm. So... I'm easy to talk with. Mm. Uh, I joked with Linda that uh, later on in my, in my law enforcement career, sometimes I'd be partnered with someone for the night, mm. and it was because I was a, was known to be a good listener. Mm. I didn't know this until I resigned, and they mm. all said, it's about time you became a priest. Uh, wow. But they would never let me be the bad cop in an interview. Back in the day, because <laughs> <laughs> it's good. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, uh, you go to mass twice a week, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but it was—it's like understanding it. So for for the stranger who's in need, they'll say he used to be a cop. He's been with the department for twenty years. Um, for more seasoned people, it's like, would you baptize my baby? We we do our wedding. Would you do my mom's funeral? Mm. So there's a, there's a comfortability there. It's, yeah. It's, they consider us part of the family. We consider them part of the family. And they're also, they know that you can relate with them after being uh, in law enforcement. Yeah. And, and can talk the language. Yeah. So it's, uh, I'm, uh, I am certainly uh, not an innocent choir boy <laughs> from my past or, yeah. or my present. Well, but it's, uh, it, it, it opens up the door. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people aren't afraid to say anything. Yeah. In, in, including... I need help. Oh, I love that. I love that, that they can, they know they can go to you. So also another resource available. So all you first responders that want to to just let it all out off your chest, Father Sean is also available for you. Your door's going to be open, like knocking on your door every minute. I'm I'm easy to find. Uh, Or as the last guy who pulled me over said, oh, Father, just slow down. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well said. Yeah. So, so you get to see a lot. I mean, there's been a lot of years, right? I mean, when you think about, you know, your professions, right, um, in, in your path, being a police officer, right, for ten years in Marshfield, then becoming a priest. Um, you go to, you know, um, anoint, you know, someone's last rites, right? Um. So a lot of death, you see a lot of death, right? And a lot of sickness, um, and mental health challenges and all, all sorts of all sorts of stuff, right? So you're also in a career that is duty trauma, right? 
uh, of service. And then uh, then also the the police chaplain where you get called in co- possibly all the time for different scenes where there's an in- injured police officer or something critical incident where you're also trained in in in, uh, in those teams right peer support, right? Yes. How do you how do you deal with it? How do you deal with all that really seriously? So, uh, one those that I work with mm. um in peer support, family assistance, have become f- friends and family. Mm. So uh, one of the officers who just retired from that unit, uh, she walked with me at, at the BFIT Challenge. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we talk regular and we talk like brother and sister. Um, mm. For those who are, are trained that I work with uh, from the clergy community, we're very close and we have no problem talking yeah and often we'll talk immediately after an incident because mm. you want to go through in your own mind and heart um he, here's where the what the family's dealing with mm. right now mm. uh, is an experience or, or a loss but he, here's what where i just came from mm. um and it kind of gives you an immediate peer support if you will yeah. um and uh unloading right just un- unload yeah, it. Yeah, it, it's, it's a debrief. Yes. Um, and it, mm. it helps you understand yourself and uh, the work you do as, as a unit, if you will, yeah. uh, together. But it, it's it's also, I mean, I, I know and have experienced it, as I'm sure other peer support folks have, of counseling, providing counseling support to someone who then dies by suicide. Mm. Um, so it's... Uh, uh, it has its it, its own need to be debriefed and and yeah. look back over the pathway, the manual, uh, your daily operations thing. Yeah, what did I miss? Yes, or, or what was the the critical incident that took that person from zero to ten where they stopped thinking? Mm. Wait, wait, I need help. Yeah, or I can't accept this reality, or. Um, I can no longer live with this. Yeah, uh, it's it's it. The illness itself can, s- even in treatment, still be uh, hidden or yeah. not unfolded. Yeah. So it's it's like an onion. Yeah. You can keep peeling, but it, he's still not there yet. Yeah, and and layers need to come off, right? Yeah. And and to for an individual to be able to figure that out, but also to be open. If if, if someone's not open to receive, yeah, some help. It's, it's n- regardless of what anyone says, right? It's it's not going to help them. No, there's op- there's always obstacles in us and around us uh, that we don't quite understand. Mm. Um, it it takes a lifetime, if you will. Yeah, and it, it, sometimes it's not till afterwards that you get clarity because the the new reality is there. Yes, absolutely, and and yeah, it's in our circumstances, yeah, for sure, a lot of growth and healing, and a lot of um, okay, this is. This is this is my purpose now, right? Yeah. And um, being able to help others go along. It was back in the late '60s, early '70s. The um, Saturday morning cartoons they always used to have these teaching episodes, like you, you'd learn about uh, conjunction, junction. What's your function? Yeah. Uh, but there was always one that it would have a moral lesson, an expose, and it would always say that's one to grow on. Mm. Um, all of every day. For us, every experience, every trial for us, or even every loss from us, should be one to grow on. What, yeah. what really matters, yeah. and if if it's about life matters, my wife matters, my family matters, my kids matter. Um, 
then it should open the door uh, to how we respond to one another. Yeah. Uh, and the necessity to, to have part of the regular recipe is debriefing, is support. Um, talking is, about it. Is talking. Mm. You know, talking matters. Presence matters. Yeah. Um, and, and not being afraid to say, you don't look yourself today. Or, mm. or how did you do with that? Mm. Um, or how do you deal with your reality? Mm. Uh, so for my friend's uh, wife, who's also a, a dear friend and part of the family, um, the phone call, the, the notification had an immediate just pause, and I don't have a word to say other than I'm sorry, I love you. Mm. Um, their day is changing, like anyone else who, who loses someone. Mm. They're prepared for it, maybe in a different way, because death is in front of them the whole time. Yeah. Um, but they still weren't expecting it. Yes. St- they're still not ready for it. Yeah. Who is? Yeah. Um, but the visits, the, the relationship, the presence, and even the response to it is what we should be doing. Mm. It's very human. Yeah. You know, uh, mm. it's uh, it was a... My first year at Sacred Heart was at a big funeral, an Italian funeral, and uh, the matriarch is sitting in the front row. Half the family's crying, half the family's just being stoic. Mm -hmm. And the ones who uh, are not crying are visibly and and verbally saying to the others, stop crying. Like, you're you're interrupting the funeral. We haven't even started. And I'll never forget it. It's a a great uh, response. She stood up and turned around and with this heavy accent said, why would you ever tell anyone not to cry? She said, uh, God made tears for you to have every day to clean the windows of your soul. Uh, if you think about it, any mm. time I pull out of the garage in the morning, I'm constantly yes, cl- cleaning putting the on car. Windows, yes. Or you constantly look at it and said, it, it needs a wash. Mm. It's filthy. Yes. And it, it may have been a storm from one day. Uh, and you do it, if, but her brilliant insight is cry every day and it could be a cry of joy uh, uh, Ugh, you know, I love that. you see you know someone pushing a baby down the street or sitting next to you in line or uh, you hear a song or read something i was just gonna say that i hear a song it can it's, move you right it, to it, tears it, it, and, it should, yeah. and it should if you if, yeah. if you have a heart <laughs> yeah but it's yeah. also when you see loss uh, you, you should have a tear mm. uh, and, and not be deflated by it, but be human with it. Yeah, I love that you said that. I love that. That's lovely. I'm going to gonna remember that. I'm going to reflect on that now for the rest of the day. Oh, I could go on and on with this conversation, Jay. Are you chiming in here or are you just, just listening? You're taking it all in too. I can, I can see it in your face. Yes, ma'am. Um, okay. So I want to ask you, Father, if there was something, think about, um, I suppose, Within departments, there's two sort of areas I want you to start to think about. One within departments, police departments, fire departments, first response in general, right? And then another answer maybe for a first responder who's listening. What would you, if you had like, I suppose, uh, an opportunity to make a change within departments of first responders, um, from top down, it doesn't matter. If you had an opportunity to improve how it would make it easier for a first responder to seek help, like to empower them to seek help, what would what would you what would you do? And then also, 
a first responder, what would yeah. you say to a first responder today who might be struggling and is listening to you? What would you say to them? I, I just want to, I want to answer those, but preface it by something. The public perception and the feelings, the real feelings of, of the public towards especially uh, law enforcement, but first responders in general, mm. is negative. It's tainted by abuses of others. It's tainted by the world we live in, uh, the decriminalization of crime. Um, it's it's a hard job. Mm. Um, and I know for my brother, it was an injury that, that put him out. He wanted to kind of stretch uh, the line a little bit because he was not near mandatory retirement but mm. almost 37 years of, of, of active service mm. is enough yeah um but it was it's the public reality that we've seen especially in our nation but i think it's a global reality too that uh these aren't good people uh and those who have first responders in their families who currently serve who have served know that there's a lot of good people who do that yes but one act uh, taints. Um, I know that from from my reality, like from the whole culture, right? Yeah, from the clergy sexual abuse crisis. Mm. I've been spit on in elevators at hospitals. Um, just the uniform that you wear yes. makes others judge. To your point earlier about Alex, mm-hmm. is uh, uh, do you know him? Now, it could have been someone who knew his story mm-hmm. or the end of his life story. Mm. Um, could be someone who just doesn't like people in uniform or had a bad experience with it. Yeah. Um, whatever it is, it is. Um, so you need that lens in order to answer both questions. So the first for the department, for uh, the administration, is um, to use a Pope Francis uh, description, uh, smell like the sheep. So you should know your department. Um <sighs> It's, uh, I want to hug you right now. That's not, that's great. I like the sheep. There, there shouldn't be a separation. Um, you still have to be the administrator. Yeah, the, you're running. You know, a, you're it, running. A, it's, a it's thing. Sto- it stops with you. You're the head of the department or the leadership. Any of the bosses, uh, the leadership. You have to supervise. You have to um, commend and also discipline. Mm. Um, you're responsible publicly to answer to politicians and. Uh, if something go- goes south, to answer for its reality. Mm. Um, but know your guys. Uh, know your sheep. I love that. And smell like them. In other words, smell like don't them. get dirty. Mm. Uh, if they're dirty, y- you're dirty. Mm. Um, it's uh, for for the, our first responder community. First of all, thank you for what you do. Thank you for your service. Thank mm. you for your sacrifice, mm. especially the toll it takes on your marriages, relationships, your children, the things you miss in order to care for others. Mm. That, thank you. Mm. Uh, we respect what you do. We respect the call of what you do. Um, uh, you are not alone. Um, there are resources there for you, whether it's peer support, whether it's outside support, uh, don't be ashamed of that. Don't feel weak with it. Know that we are all weak. We bleed. We hurt. Um, we suffer. Um, sometimes it's in hidden ways. Sometimes it's in public ways. Uh, to coin a, a law enforcement phrase, uh, if you see something, say something. Mm. 
tell your peers, uh, you look like shit today. Mm. You can bleep that out later <laughs> on if you want to. Uh, it's not the first time I've said it. Um, also, when you're enduring something or experiencing something, make sure the resources are there. If you don't have it present on your department, ask for it. Negotiate it. Mm. Uh, it should be normal. Um, I know that there's programs. I know you're both going to talk about uh, mm. upcoming things that mm-hmm. having the resources locally uh, that we want to support and host so that uh, if you have an incident or if you are suffering through something, that you have a place to go where there is support where you're not being watched by the bosses. Yeah, You need to be able to debrief, and mm. uh, we've hosted plenty of those from this area. Um, and, again, places like Boston do it very well, but mm. they, they have negotiated these what should be normal benefits as a collective bargaining that, yes. can, that can't be taken away. Yeah. Um, it, and it should be that. It, sh- it should always be given, but if they don't give it to you, then uh, have it written into your contracts or, mm. or create regional places where it, it can be part of, this is what you're owed. Mm. Uh, you know, you drop off your dry cleaning and it's, it gets paid for by the department. You should be able to drop into a place and get support, uh, regular support, mm. uh, your daily bread of support. Oh, I love that. I love that. And what Father Sean has started talking about, I mean, thank you for saying that. I I know those two answers that you gave are very, I'm sitting across from him, so I know they are heartfelt. And when he's saying that, and he's a priest, so he's not going to lie to it, right? Um, But what I want to add to that is um, some of the things, the local things that we are offering. And Father Sean is so, so supportive, and we're so blessed and grateful to have your support on that. And I know you believe in, and this stuff works, right? Um, you know, we're doing the blanket making. I, um, we started our first one in January 20th over at Sacred Heart Church. And uh, it was absolutely wonderful. And the next day we got to deliver them up to Onsite Academy and they were embraced immensely. I mean, it was just wonderful mm. to, to deliver them off there um, to, to Dr. Duggan, right? And, yeah. and he met us there and took them off and he was so grateful. And uh, and the next one is February 24th. So if anyone wants to come and volunteer, just, um, you know, email us, contact us and uh, sort of let us know that you're coming and we'll, we'll add you to the list. Um, but more importantly, also March 7th, it's been so, something that we've been rolling around in our heads for a couple of months and um, myself and Jay and uh, talking about like how can we support families of first responders and the first responders um, be aware of, you know, the resources available to them and um, out there. And it came up, it came up in many, many interviews and it, and it was rolling around in my head for weeks and weeks and weeks. And eventually I said to Jay, this is not leaving me. This is, this is not leaving me. It's coming up in my head all the time. It's what I'm constantly thinking about. So I'm taking that as a sign. We're going to move forward with this. And Jay said, yep. And I said, there's no reason why we can't provide this. And he said, yep, you're right. Let's do it. Let's let me put our heads together. So, um, so basically we're holding a, a, a first responder family readiness workshop um, for first responders and families with the purpose of having so many organizations that are coming. I think there's maybe 12 or up to 12 big known organizations, including McLean, um, the leader program coming. And they're all going to set up tables at night and, um, and have information about the programs that they offer to help first responders and families. Onsite Academy will be there too. And then basically mm-hmm. um, we're putting on the night and we'll open up the night, but each 
organisation who's there are going to have an opportunity to, to present to whoever's sitting in the audience, right? And then now here's this wife or spouse, our first responder, now being connected. The purpose is to connect the, the families and the first responder directly to the resources. They know now, here's all these people here, yep. and during break, they can go over and mingle at those tables, right, and get information from each individual one who they choose to, to interact with. And then um, at the end of the evening... Um, or some point in the evening, each family who shows up that night, first responders, families, parents of first responders, whoever it might be, um, they're going to leave with a folder that the AGK Memorial Fund has been fundraising for and uh, and hope you on the badge. We're putting these folders or binders together for families and every family will leave one of those. In the folder will be all those organisations um, but all their information in there um, that... If they don't want to open that, they might not want to open that. They're going to go home with it. But they might not need to open it that night or a couple of weeks later or whatever. But when they do, they have it. Instead of being in a situation where the family is struggling and they don't know where to go, where to call, who to call or whatever. And this is, makes it easier for them to be able to reach out to the to the resources available to them. We're going to have equine therapy there. We're going to have mindfulness coaches there. We're going to have financial um, coach they're also helping first responders who might have gone into a bit of a struggle with finances right so we want to have financial wellness there too we'll have trauma therapists there um, oh, all sorts of organisations there and it's absolutely going to be wonderful so we want to start to keep continue to get the word out there we're also getting it out to the departments and um, you know making sure that they have representation from each department um coming to it that night and Father Sean is, is very gratefully um, letting us have um, the room downstairs. Yeah, The, the big hall. And the big hall. Mm-hmm. It's You know, back in 85 at the academy, they were just starting to, based on lawsuits, tragedies and things like that, mm. was saying, you know, put your house into a trust for your family. Mm. Uh, don't put it in your name. Yeah. Mm. Um, with your car, uh, Get the over and under insurance. It's twenty bucks, but if you get whacked at work, and or you make a mistake at work, you, you have a insurance. You have, yeah. you have a backup plan. Yeah. Uh, part of the regular training at, at Boston's Academy, and I don't know if it happens in the regional ones now or in the state police. Um, they have family day. They have. Um, you know, literature like those folders where mm. they explain to you, uh, now that you're officially putting on the badge, if you will, you're being sworn in, mm. here's your liability, but here's your resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, for for your own website, if it's not already on there, all of those resources, scan them in. So if someone's looking up, and a lot of folks in the world we live in today, they don't do what we were brought up to do. You go to the library <laughs> to mm. find an answer. Mm. They want to instantly look. Yeah. Uh, for people who are struggling um, or their loved ones are struggling, they're often going to look up something first before yeah. they make contact. Yeah. So having resources uh, on, on your website and, and others like it, mm. um, it, it's helpful to folks. Uh, yes. These introductions, at, at, at like this seminar, w- will help. Yes. Hopefully every department sends a rep. Yes. Um, and if they don't have a, a unit uh, designated, 
uh, if you're a member or a loved one of, of, of a member who serves, uh, go and advocate for them. Yes. And say, you don't have this here, but you should. Yes. Um, yes. You know, they, they mandate things like putting on your seatbelt. They're mandating yeah. things like putting on a camera so yes. they can watch you. Yes. They should mandate ways to support you. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Make it a normal, not just a program that gets yes. checked off, right? The box exactly. checked off once a year or wherever it might be. Make it part of the normal program or the part of the norm in the department. And I also want to just start to hit on that a little bit, you know, for a first responder spouse or family member, right, who's there uh, to to help support, right, that, that first responder. Um it just takes away that anxiety, that stress, right? And that's what we want to re- help relieve or or take away, right? Help yeah. remove that. It um, should be part of the toolbox. Yes, it's part of the toolbox yeah. to be able to help them get through a tough situation. And not only are they going to be there and we're providing the resources, but we'll also be, be able to connect their faces to those phone numbers that you're going to get. Yeah. And you'll get to realise, hey, they're just like me and me, and makes it easier for them yeah. to approach that. I had said to Jay, like, McLean Leadership Programme, right? Um, I had said to Jay once before, you know, I lo- I'd love that if, if McLean could be present, right, at, yep. at, at this event. And I was just using that as an example to him to describe the feeling that I felt when even the word McLean was mentioned. My shoulders tensed up. Yeah. And um, and I could picture that happening to a spouse, a loved one of a first responder, saying, no, not my loved one, right? Um, no, I'm not going to McLean. And, and the tension is there. And by there, that night, they're going to realize, yeah. wow. Well, and the, the, the stigma there, too, is yeah. the name is, they don't call it McLean's. They call it the leader program. The leader program. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's I, I, I'm part of leader. So yes. I'm a leader yes. who's going to leader. Yes. That sounds very joyful, yes. peaceful. It's it's non-toxic. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. yes. But if you say, uh, uh, I heard it last night, uh, someone making a reference to oh, Medfield, for the poor people at Medfield, Medfield law enforcement, first responder community, mm-hmm. I, I uh, give you a disclaimer at the beginning. <laughs> I said I was interacting with someone who said, Oh, I graduated from Medfield, and they said, "Oh, what year were you in high school there?" And they said, "No, the state hospital," <laughs> <laughs> and it stopped the conversation. Wow! Yeah. Uh, wow! And that's often what happens when someone seeks help yeah. or treatment. Yeah, and and that's why it's important to for language, but it's also important to have places that are reserved for the first responder. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, this this has been absolutely amazing conversation. I don't know, you you good? You it? I'm good. This has been incredible. Thank you so much, Father Sean, uh, for allowing us to have that space to put on this family readiness night and and the blanket events, the family readiness workshop and the, in the blanket making events. And thank you for joining us on the podcast. It's been wonderful. Yeah. To hear, to hear his perspective, right. On, on his journey, right. As a police officer and going into priest and then continue to support. Absolutely amazing. I learned something new about you too. Also. So, um, we're very supportive and I, I absolutely love this conversation. I could go on for another hour with you, father. And just let you go on um, because you have so much information and insight um, to help first responders and families. And mm. uh, we know you're also a resource um, for, for both um, out there. So thank you so much for coming in to us today. Uh, thank you. And thank you for, for what you do uh, to, to help others. It's, it's our preparation like our communication matters. Mm. So mm. we 
prayed and blessed those blankets as they were being made. Yes. We reminded those participating that every stitch, every cut uh, is another prayer. It's another act of love. It's, uh, it, it creates something mm. that's going to be made ready for those who are in need to be wrapped in. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and hopefully the, uh, the continued work that you and others do helps not only prepare for when bad things come, but it's, it's a constant daily support so yeah prayers to the first responder military community out there uh we appreciate what you do we love you and to help you if you can amen to that amen till next time well welcome to church <laughs> <laughs>